0: The podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter. Sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk Amen. Amen to that. Good morning, everybody. Really good to be with you uh, again today. hope you all slept well and ate breakfast well. Um, I feel like I'm competing with a much better sermon that's going on out there um, that nature's sort of rivaling, and I can't compete with that, frankly, so... By all means, feel free just to ignore me and look out the window. Um, or just even to go and join the surfers if you, f- if you feel you need to. But what an incredible place to, uh, to be together. Um, I must be feeling at home because I'm wearing my slippers as well. I just thought I'd, uh, you, you made me feel very relaxed. So I thought I'd just preach in my slippers. Um, there'll be a cigar by the afternoon. And some, some brandy. Yeah. All right. Well, um, Despite, regardless of how you did in that quiz last night, by the way, I just want to encourage you that Romans, whatever else Romans is, it's not an, it's not an academic exercise, is it? Um, and I think one of the reasons I uh, have put together these resources on Romans, including um, the, the book that I've written, but also the video series, is because I felt like Romans had been slightly, no, for no no, one, no ill motive, but it had been almost slightly hijacked by these incredibly serious theologians and academics, and that's brilliant, and I draw a lot on their resources. But actually, when you turn to the end of Romans and you see who Paul wrote the letter to, there's an incredible list of names at the end, they are not the intellectual elites of the Roman world, because they weren't Christians at the time. Yes, they do include one or two people. I mean, Gaius is mentioned, who was head of public works um, in Corinth. So, I mean, he had a very senior responsibility in the civil service, as we might think of it. But the vast majority of these people, I mean, some of them are slaves, You know, think about that. They're they're, they're treated like machines. And Paul writes Romans to them to dignify them, to honor them, and to say this gospel message should make sense to you. So I felt this kind of burden that actually we've got to get Romans, along with the rest of Scripture, back in the hands of the ordinary people to whom it was originally written. Um, People who are not particularly the elite of the world, but just ordinary people like you and me. Does that kind of make sense to you? And I think that's really important. And as I, so the quiz was just a warm-up. But it's not like Romans is about answering questions. Um, it's actually about getting that vision that so transforms us, that through us God brings transformation to the world. That's what that's what Paul's agenda is in Romans. When I say this, I think of uh, a young man called Danny. When we were living, I, I, know, I know that first question got us off to a bad start about Devon or Cornwall. Um, but the reason, part of the reason for saying Cornwall, uh, amongst many, um, is, uh, <laughs> am I just making it worse, aren't I? <laughs> better beaches, better pasties. No, the, re- the reason for saying Cornwall is because uh, we used to live there in Penzance, right down the bottom of Cornwall. That's where we were leading uh, church in Penzance. We planted a church in Hale and other parts of Cornwall as well, which was a real joy. And when we were down there, um, a couple of years in, and I was very young at the time and finding my way, as I still am. Um, There's a young guy called Danny who moved down. He was from London and quite a few people, I I struggled to believe this until I saw it, but because quite a lot of people were just running away from the madness of a life or the danger of a life that they, they didn't want to be in anymore, they used to get on the train and they would just get off wherever the train finished and that was Penzance. It was the end of the line. So people just used to walk onto the high street of Penzance, basically just trying to get away from things and find something else. And Danny was one of those. Unfortunately, despite uh, he'd been in the gang culture in, in inner city London and become a drug addict and been into some crime. And he um, fortunately got into a rehabilitation center. So they really did the, a lot of the main hard yards with Danny in terms of his addictions. But he started coming to the church that we were part of. And to cut a long story short, Danny became a Christian. And um, we baptized him in the sea, which is an amazing experience. And I remember saying to Danny after we baptized him, now bear in mind this guy... Was a former drug addict, and he's never read a book in his life. He dropped out of school age 14, and he said, "I've the only book I've ever read is a comic, right?" And I, being the all-wise and knowing pastor, said to Danny, "Why don't you try reading Romans?" <laughs> Brilliant advice. Yeah, yeah. You can see what I was doing there. Um, anyway, Danny didn't know any better than me, so he took me at my word. He said, "All right, where's Romans?" He so, you know, like thick cognacs, and I don't know where that is, Andrew and so I said, well, it's in the Bible, and I showed him, it. and he had a copy of a Gideon's copy in the sheltered accommodation he was in, so Danny went home, and he started reading Romans, and once a week, I used to go around to meet with Danny, and to try and sort of help him, and I honestly, the things that Danny was getting out of Romans, you would not believe it. Here's this guy, he's never read a book in his life, he can only just about read, he can only just about fill in a form with his name, and he's Getting into Romans, and he said, he said to me, He said, it's, it's sorting out my madness. That's what he said. He said, It's sorting out my madness. And I, I actually became suspicious. I remember one time I said to him, Who else are you meeting with? <laughs> you know, I was convinced that somebody else was feeding him these insightful things from Romans. But no, it was just the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures and Danny. And it's been a real reminder to me, I often think of Danny, particularly when I tend to be writing scripts and doing filming work, which I do quite a bit of now, I often think about Danny. I've got a little sort of picture of him that I sometimes put in my pocket and just remember, you're speaking to Danny, not to the intellectual elites, but make sense to Danny, because he's the guy that God loves. And and, uh, and anyway, his life was turned around in part by engaging with Romans. I phoned him um, a few months ago. I phoned him, this is back a few months now, Because he'd gone back to London, and I was a bit concerned for how he was doing, uh, whether he'd gone back to the madness. And I phoned Danny, and I said, "Um, you know, how are you doing, Danny? He says, I'm good, Andrew, I'm good. And I said, what have you been up to, Danny? And he said, I'll kid you not, he said, I have been studying presuppositional apologetics. (laughs) That's actually what he said. Yeah. Which, if you don't know what that is, it's not a class A drug. That's That's the... that's the important thing to note. Um, Danny, in other words, is going on with God's word and, and uh, still growing with God. So Romans is for Danny as much as it's for anybody um, and for you and for me. Well, in terms of what we're going to do uh, today, just bear in mind what I just said there, that Paul wrote Romans not just as a sort of bored with nothing to do, I'll, I'll write a letter. He wrote it with an intention, with an, with an agenda. And, and the, the more you get to the end of Romans, as you'll see in the series, the more he begins to reveal what he was doing in presenting this most sustained description of the gospel in any of Paul's letters. What he's doing is he's wanting to both unite to the Roman people, the, the, the Christians in Rome. There was a bit of division. But he's also wanting to mobilize these Christians for the mission that God has in the world. He, he knows that Rome, this great city, needs Christians who are gospel people in, to transform it from the inside out. Paul then, in the end of Romans, says, I'm actually going to come and visit you and then I'm going to Spain. I mean, why not? Um, if you're going to go on missions, why not? Anyway, Paul I'm going to Spain because the, the whole of the Iberian Peninsula, that, that sort of western part of the empire, doesn't know Jesus. So he's obviously thinking that when he comes to Rome, he'll sort of see who's, who's who and maybe invite a few of them to join him on his mission to Spain. In other words, this letter has an agenda, which is by the end of it, notice this person here, by the end of the letter, he wants people who are ready... For this onward mission, you know, to Rome, to Spain, to the ends of the earth, to be not just turning up at church and donating a tithe, you know. So often, I think Christianity, and it's often the, the, at a leadership level that we've set this kind of expectation that you turn up and you tithe, and we've got what we want from the majority of Christians, you know, and otherwise the clergy will sort out the work, you know. And I know that's not exactly how Belmont works, <laughs> praise God, because that's absolutely not New Testament Christianity, is it? It's not turn up and tithe. I mean, by all means, turn up and tithe. But that's just the beginnings of making a contribution to God's great mission to reach our world with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so by the end of Romans, you know, if this journey of the gospel has its effect, the idea for Paul is that at the end of Romans, you're ready to be part of God's mission. And of course, it's it's not a neat fit like that. But I suppose, you know, that would be my real framing of the context for looking at Romans 5 or any part of Romans, it's not just giving us what we need so that we can survive in life. It's helping us become gospel people who actually turn the world upside down in Jesus' name. Are you up for being part of that? That is not just turning up and tithing. That is transforming the world in Jesus' name. And I think if I was to summarize what gospel people mean for Paul, I mean, I think the first thing he's doing down in the valley of sin is he's wanting to make sure that we're grateful people because you're not going to make a dent on the world if you still are in the mindset of, I've been hard done by, and I deserve better. It's like, if we want to talk about what you deserve, go and ask God about that, and good luck, right? (laughs) Good luck with that conversation, because he knows everything about you. And if you want to talk about what you deserve by nature, I don't think that's going to go very well for you. But if you want to receive what is yours by a gift of grace then that's the grateful people that the gospel generates, is it not? People who just are so, whatever the day holds for us, we wake up with a sense, and and I'm preaching to myself, or I'm not saying I just naturally do this. I don't naturally do this. I have to sometimes make myself come into the zone of this. But the gospel zone is to say, actually, whatever's happening in my world, God, I am a grateful person. You have given me what I could not pay back and what I don't deserve now and for eternity. So he's wanting to make sure we're grateful people. And I, in my book on Reymans, I mentioned this, young, uh, this old man called Headley who I went to visit when we were uh, leading this church down in Cornwall. And Headley was an older man and he had an operation which had gone wrong. And he never actually recovered from the bed that he was on when I went to visit him because other people had mucked it up for Headley. So he had every reason to be resentful. Um... And I went to visit Headley, and I thought I was going to help him. But actually, Headley just helped me because his... And, I, and the thing I remember about him was I used to ask him each time I went round, you know, how are you doing, Headley? And his, his response was the same every time. But it, it wasn't like a script. It was from the heart. He just used to say, well, I've got much to thank the Lord for. And I was like, here's this guy on a bed, which he won't actually get up from in this life because someone else mucked up the operation. And his sense of... Life was, I've got, a, I've got much to thank the Lord for. I just thought that those are the kinds of people that will change the world. Don't you think? Grateful people. And then, secondly, and we're going to look at this today and, and uh, this evening, is uh, I can hardly write, secure. Grateful people, secure people. We'll come to that in a moment. That's Romans 5. And then Romans 6 and 7, freed people, people who've been delivered from the rule and the dominion of sin, and they know they have, and they live like that. Not that they're perfect but they're not slaves to sin anymore. And then I think Romans 8, more than anything, is hopeful people, people who've seen what God has in store in the future and are living into that vision of hope, not despairing, not doom forecasting. And then we saw last night, I'd say, devoted people, living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. And then you'll come on in, in, as, you, as you return to community here to see how we need to be a united people, in spite of the fact that we're not the same. We're one even though we're not the same, to quote you two, then, you know, you are ready to be missional people, ready to transform the world. And and so this is what I think Paul's doing. He's wanting to create gospel people, and gospel people are grateful people, secure people, freed people, hopeful people, devoted people, united people, people on a mission who live like that. And Paul's like, that's what this letter of Romans is all about. So every little part of it, in our case... We're going to sit here today, uh, which is a beautiful place to sit, and take in the view a little bit of the ground that we've gained through Romans one and three, one to four, and Paul has a sort of therefore. Let's reflect on this moment in Romans five, as we've just heard read. But all of this is in the context of gospel people, and in this case, um, people who are secure. So here we are. I love these moments on big mountain adventures uh, where you've, you've sort of, you're not at the summit, not, not anywhere close to the summit. Maybe you've seen the summit for the first time because you've gained, you've climbed out of a very difficult place. And you, you sort of, it's the first time that maybe you take off your rucksack and take out the flask and sandwiches or whatever you've carried, and you turn around and you realize, wow, the view's opening up behind us. Um, and as I say, you're not on the summit yet, but maybe the route ahead starts to be opening up and drawing you in and, and calling you on, and that's the kind of Romans 5 experience. Paul opens it with therefore, which is his way of saying, well, as, as we often say as preachers, you know, if you read therefore, you have got to ask, what's it there for? And it's there to say, look now at, at the implications of everything I've just described of what Jesus has done for you. Romans 3 and 4 is all about this gift that we receive of grace, and Romans 5, Romans 5 is Paul saying, let's unpack the implications of actually living in this grace that we've now been given to the place of peace. And I, and I think um, what I, the word I wanted to use just to sort of push into this, lean into this, is that, as I said in those gospel people sort of summaries, I think what Paul wants Romans 5 to do for us is to grow us as secure people. Again, you know, if we're not grateful people, we won't make a dent on the world. But if we're not secure in our identity in Jesus Christ, the world will, will wrap us up in knots um, of insecurities. and I, I'm sure we feel this because none of us are, I imagine, the finished article when it comes to being secure in Christ. We're all works in process and I, and I think there are insecurities in me and I feel it often still. In fact, I feel like the more I grow into my relationship with God, the more it, it opens up new areas that I didn't realize were not as they should be. Is anyone, is that just me? <laughs> it is just me. All right. Thanks for the support there. That's really helpful. Maybe it's not just me. Maybe all of us are on that journey of, oh, I didn't realize that was in me, that reaction or that um, or that, uh, that sense of entitlement or that anxiety that you feel about a situation or whatever it may be. And, and, I, and I think if I was to summarize why this secure thing matters, you know, it We will run ourselves into the ground if we have something to prove. Isn't that true of our culture? If you live with something to prove, you will run yourself into the ground and you'll hurt and exhaust a lot of other people around you on the way. We'll be distracted with envy if we're not comfortable in our own skin. And this is tyrannized by social media today, which will show you what everybody else's best version of themselves is doing right now. And if you're not comfortable in your skin... In the body that you've been given, in the life that you've been given, you will be distracted from living the life you've been given with envy. Is this resonating with you? Is is Belmont not struggling with these things? (laughs) Yeah, all right. We're we're in the yeah, we are and then we'll be anxious and duplicitous if we need the approval of others. I mean, would you agree with those statements? Maybe, maybe you want to write them down or take a photo of them and reflect on them because I sort of crafted those thinking this is why I think Romans 5 matters so much. It's like until I mean I I know I'm sure you enjoy just studying the Bible for its own sake but sometimes you need to know the why. Why do I need Romans 5? Well because Romans 5 is going to help you to be secure in Christ and if you're not secure in Christ this is the life that the, the modern anxious accelerated world in which we live will ride you like a horse if you are not secure in Jesus Christ. If you've got something you need to prove to the world, you'll exhaust yourself. If you're not comfortable in your own skin, you will be forever looking at what other people are doing with distracted envy. If you, if you need the approval of others, if you need to feel popular or approved of, uh, then unfortunately you will be anxious and at times duplicitous. That is, you will lie, you will de- deceive others into f- trying to get people to think that you're something that you're not, which only leaves us lonely and aching for who we really are. So these are the reasons why I believe Raymond's 5 matters. It's probably one of the most important chapters in the social context that we find ourselves in um, today. With all of that in mind then, we've seen this passage, um, we've had it read to us. And I simply wanted to show you that I think, and this gives us a bit of a roadmap for this session and, and this evening, actually, or this afternoon. I think what, what you have in sort of the first couple of verses of these, this section of Romans 5, and we're not going you know, to look at the whole thing, is um, you have something a bit more objective in terms of the emphasis here. Paul is wanting to particularly highlight the work of Christ As the objective facts that secure us in God's love. So if you want to ask the question, how does God feel about me? How does God feel about you? There's two ways to answer that. You can answer it with objective facts. You can look at the work of Christ and who you are in Christ. And that's what we're going to do this morning. But I also think, notice here, that Paul moves on then to not just the objective facts, but the sort of, if you like, the subjective experience. Um, And this particularly is about the witness um, of the Holy Spirit. So you have both the work of Christ, which is an objective truth of what God has already done to demonstrate his love for us. Romans 5 verse 8, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But you also have the subjective experience, the witness of the Holy Spirit. God has poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he's given to us. So this morning, I want to focus on the objective facts. And then this afternoon, we'll look at the subjective experience. Does that sound okay? Good, because it's all I've got, frankly. Um, so let's do that. <laughs> and uh, and the, first, the first couple of verses sum up the sense of the objective facts of who we now are. What our new secure identity is in Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And by the way, this little phrase here, which I highlighted yesterday, which has really got me intrigued in a fresh way, I will look at that tomorrow morning, um, that sense of hope, boasting in the hope of the glory of God. Now, I think the way these objective facts work is something, is something like this. If, if we don't want to be insecure, um, we looked at that, how can we become secure, more secure in God's love? I think the first thing that Paul would say is you need to realize that to become a Christian is to inhabit a new location. You are now in Christ, is Paul's favorite way to describe a Christian. And it's when you ground your identity in that new location, in Christ, that out of it, you find in Romans 5, uh, 1 and 2, a couple of other things. You, you now find that you live in a new atmosphere. Does anyone else struggle to write these days? We don't really do much writing, do we? I feel like a, I feel like that, like a kid when you return from the summer holidays. It's like, I can't write anymore. What's going on? Your new atmosphere. Notice Paul's little phrase, peace with God, a new atmosphere of peace, and then new access. He says, We have gained access by grace into this faith, the grace in which we now stand, uh, standing, standing in grace. So I want to unpack this this morning, that out of, notice the the order, out of this new location, new identity in Christ, we come into a new atmosphere, we have peace with God and we gain new access. We stand in grace. And this is really how Romans 5 works as a dynamic. Let's consider then one at a time. Firstly, let's consider the new location that we have gained access to. Now, if you have your Bible open at Romans 5, you'll notice that whilst I'm only really focusing on a couple of verses for time's sake, you'll notice that actually later in Romans 5, Paul does a quite extended comparison between uh, Adam, the first human, and Christ, who is the new Adam. And I'm not going to go into all of this. But I will just highlight a couple of verses because I think when we want to understand our new location, what Paul means when he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have been made righteous through faith in Jesus. But you begin to tease that out and you say, well, how is that the case? If I'm a sinner, which is what I've been told in chapters 1 to 3, how am I now being told that I am righteous? Well, as, as I've said, the key to that is that we have gained a new location. We've come into a new identity. We are now being described as in Christ Jesus. And, and I think what Paul's doing in Romans 5, 12 to 21 is he's trying to set up the human race with two federal heads, two human beings that represent two very different forms of humanity. Adam, who by nature we are born into a human race that is identified with Adam um, in particular, an Adam who, by the way, you may know this, but Adam, the Hebrew word Adam, is both a name for a particular human being, a man, but it's also, it also is the name for humankind. So Adam is both a particular human being, but also a representative of humankind at large. And that humankind at large is what we're born into, a human race that has fallen from our relationship with God, and has so much about its identity that is therefore under condemnation. And imagine it this way. Let me, let me, let me be visual at this point, because I think this might be might be helpful. Imagine um, that this is this is me. My wife cut this out for me, so you know that, that's uh, I couldn't do this all by myself, but she did that for me. So imagine this is me, and and I want to, um, want you to imagine now. Let me just use another book actually. I've been reading this book, uh, one of my Christmas presents, by an author called Tom Holland called Pax, which is all about um, Pax is the is a Sometimes a boy's name, isn't it? But it means peace, as you may know in Latin. Um, and it's a, it's a great book. But forget that for now. I want you to imagine, let's turn it around it's a bit darker. I want you to imagine that this book represents Adam. Okay? And what Paul is really saying is, when we were born, we were born into a human race that is fallen in Adam. And so we are situated, we're located within a particular identity. We are in Adam. And, and you know, the whole judging a book by its cover. Well, whatever was true of Adam... In his fallenness, in his under God's judgment, in his exclusion from God's presence, those things are by by nature true of us. But what Paul is saying is when you become a Christian, it's not just that you try and behave a bit better or you make some lifestyle changes. You are relocated. Amen? You were in Adam. But Christianity, to become a Christian, is a transfer. In one of his other letters, Colossians, Paul actually uses that phrase, now you are transferred into Jesus Christ, right? Imagine this, is, this, is the, this book represents the identity of Jesus himself. Now look at me. I am in Christ, right? And that means that whatever is true of Jesus is now true of me. I'm identified in him. I am united to him. So where if he is righteous, what does that make me? Righteous. If he is loved by the Father, what does that mean for me? Loved by the Father. If he is son of God, what does that mean I am? A child of God. Yeah. If he is an heir of God's kingdom, what does that make me? Romans 8. Co-heirs with Christ. Everything that belongs to him now belongs to me. I don't know about you, but when I say that, I feel like I'm saying something wrong. It's so radical. Don't you think? You sort of read, I mean, it's only because it's in the Bible that we know we can say these kinds of things. Otherwise, it sounds preposterous, even arrogant. But this is what the scriptures say. We are co-heirs with Christ. We have as much right to God's glory as Jesus Christ himself. Not by nature. This is the difference. Jesus Christ belongs to the Father and is is the heir of the kingdom by nature. Eternally, he is one with the father, the only begotten son. We are these things not by nature, but by grace. We are not only begotten of the father, but we have been adopted into this family and brought in as heirs of this kingdom. Even that whole idea of adoption. You know, the Roman Empire actually had a very high valuing of the status of an adopted son, not least because several of the most high-profile emperors were adopted. Julius Caesar, adopted son. Augustus Caesar, adopted by Julius Caesar. These these were adopted people who, as soon as that adoption took place, they gained the name of this great empire, Caesar. You know, that's where the name is given. It's given at the point of adoption. They gained the power and the authority and the glory and the inheritance. And in the same way, Paul is writing to some You know, slaves living in a filthy attic, and he's saying, forget about the Caesars. You have been adopted into Christ Jesus. You are now heirs of God's kingdom. It's extraordinary, isn't it? But this is identity change. This is a new location now. I need to wake up in the morning and not just say to myself, you're a Christian now, so try and behave a bit better. I need to wake up in the morning and say to myself, Andrew, you are in Christ today. So act like it. You know, live out the identity that you have been given. And, and here, can I make this point? You may not feel very in Christ, <laughs> but I'm not talking about what you're feeling. We'll come on to that later. This isn't about your feelings. God declares this over you. So it's, it's not actually about whether you feel like it. It's about aligning yourself with what he now says is true. It's perfectly possible. I'll come on to this at the end, but it's perfectly possible for an adopted child to still struggle to live in the security of their new status. But that new status is written in ink, is it not? It's a legal transference that is true whether you feel like it or not. So part of the challenge of being secure is to actually call ourselves into these truths and to catch up with what God has said is already true of us. At the point that you believed in Jesus Christ, you were in Christ. And that makes the world of difference to how you see yourself and the security that you have. And this is why Paul can say, since then, we have been justified by faith. Notice that. We have been justified by faith. It's not a work in progress. At the point of our belief in the Messiah, we have been justified, made righteous, considered, and counted in Christ Jesus as one of God's children. What a gift. And, it, and your performance is not going to make any impact on the new location in which you live. Isn't that good news? You can't improve it, and you can't diminish it, because you're in Christ. The way we behave, which Paul will come on to in Romans 6 and 7, is simply about aligning ourselves with what has been done to us, what is true of us with our new identity. So I find, I, I don't know about you, I find I have to, yeah, just, just get myself back into this place. Because too often I have a form of spiritual amnesia that just forgets the great things that are true of me in Christ Jesus. And my feelings won't necessarily tell me, and certainly the world won't tell me this. So I have to get into the Scriptures and through the help of the Holy Spirit recover often a clarity around my identity, my new location in Jesus. Have you ever had this experience? Let me put it this way. Have you ever had this experience? When we lived in Cornwall, we, um, we initially moved to a house right, over, right overlooking the beach, and then, and then we moved to another house, which is about half a mile away. And have you ever had this experience where I used to find myself driving back from Helston, where we often had meetings, and, and an automatic pilot kind of going back to the old house. Have you ever had this experience? I can remember one occasion actually pulling up on the drive, you know, opening the door, and then just as I was about to get out thinking, I don't know, (laughs) I don't live here anymore. You know, and in the same way, part of the challenge of being a Christian is to not go back to your old way of thinking about yourself. No, no, you don't live there anymore. You've been relocated now. These things are true of you. You are no longer in Adam. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? So the first thing Paul says is you've got to live in a new location if you're going to be secure in God's love. But the second thing he says is that we also live as a result of that in a new atmosphere. What does Paul say? Since then we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I, um, I often tell this story as a way of just cutting through what this means, to, uh, to, to put it in, if you like, more personal terms. But a few years ago, I, um, I completed a PhD, which some of you may have done as well, which in the British system, is, as you'll know, probably, it basically means you spend about three or four years writing, your, researching and writing a thesis, your, your idea, big idea, in the academic world. And then um, you submit that to the university. And then they pass your work on to three or four professors who are experts in your field. And then a few months or a few weeks later, when they've read it, you go and meet with them. And this is called your viva. And um, for three or four hours, they're going to quiz you, grill you about your work. And you don't know what they're going to ask, but you have to defend your thesis. And then at the end, they'll ask you to leave and they'll confer, call you back in and let you know whether you've passed or failed or whether there are major revisions or minor revisions. And it's a pretty, I mean, my point is the viva is a pretty nerve wracking day because Three or four years of research comes down to that conversation. Old school approach to to it, I know, but that's the way it works. I turned up to my viva, feeling pretty nervous, pretty anxious. And um, after a few pleasantries, for reasons I still don't really understand, the lead examiner got up and he walked across the room and he put out his hand and he said, we've decided to tell you in advance that you've passed. Well done, Dr. Ollerton. He actually said that phrase, well done, Dr. Ollerton. And I can remember looking up at this hand, just thinking, just, not, just struggling to take in, really. I was, I was bracing myself to have to prove that I was good enough, and there was this hand saying, you've passed. And when I took hold of that hand, I can, I can still feel, well, that is peace right there. You know, that is peace, because... Up front, you're being told whatever else. I mean, we did then go on to have a couple of hours' conversation about how I could improve my work. But I was fine with that because that conversation was in the light of the fact that whatever came up, I passed. I was in. The new identity had been secured. And I think of that as a pretty helpful summary of what Paul means here. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. our Lord Jesus Christ. We think so often, we think that that the idea is we work our way forwards towards a place of acceptance. But up front, God has come into our world through Jesus Christ and reached out his hand to us by the Holy Spirit and said, you will be my children up front, apart from your proving of anything. And as we reach out and take hold of that hand, we have peace with God. That means that uh, whatever other emotions I may feel, when I, fundamentally, when I ask the question, so how does God feel about me? How does he feel about you? We have to answer that question in the light of Romans 5. We have peace with God. He loves us as his own children. How do I feel about my kids? And I'm a very imperfect, at times impatient father. How do you feel about your kids? You know, you're, not, you're not putting them on trial every day to see whether by the end of the day they're still your kids. I mean, sometimes, but you know, no, you're not, are you? And they know that. Hopefully they know that. No, 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 you're not on trial every day to see whether at the end we change the arrangement. You're, you're my children. And that's going to be true at the end of the day, no more or no less than it is at the start of the day. Living into that peace with God is part of being secure. You see, what's the alternative? It's back to those three little phrases I put on the screen at the start. You know, if we, live, if we live this into this world as if we have something to prove, as if we have to justify our existence by demonstrating our competence or our popularity or whatever else it may be. Live into the world that way and the world will ride you like a horse. Live into the world with a point to prove, with a need to show something. And I realize for some of us, this may go right back to our childhood where maybe we weren't fully approved of apart from our performance, where we did live with a sense of push, push in the back of parents who wanted us to be better or who we felt we disappointed or siblings who seem to always be the ones who impressed and we've grown into this mindset that's deeply ingrained that we have a point that we need to prove or we've got to find a, a, a level of approval that we've not achieved yet and we take it into our work and we take it into our marriage and we take it through life and it exhausts us with insecurities that we will never be able to resolve And here Romans 5 is saying you'll never get there until you've come here to receive peace with God, to know that the Almighty God, the creator of the ends of the earth, approves of you and so you've got nothing to prove. Wouldn't you agree that if Almighty God approves of you, you've got nothing to prove? I, I tried to write uh, write this, and I thought I found this earlier. And I thought I'd just read this because this, this is me putting it better in, on paper than I can now. So listen, this is how I, you know. So how does God feel when He looks at you? Not a frown of disappointment, but a smile of joy. This is true whether we feel it or not, because it's not a mood based on our behavior, but a formal declaration signed in the blood of Jesus. This is a solid foundation for living with peace. There is no greater person who could love you and rejoice over you than the one who already does. Almighty God has declared peace with us forever. So what have we to fear? And I think that really, that's what I wanted to capture this morning. When we live out of that place, our insecurities are addressed by a higher truth. We have peace with God. Almighty God approves of us What have we got to prove? Or as I think uh, Tim Keller puts it in a helpful quote, the gospel truth is that I am so sinful that Jesus had to die for me, yet so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. I can't feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. Isn't that a great... Quote, this is the gospel. This is how it works its way through and resolves our insecurities and dr- generates secure people who live on a daily basis in Christ Jesus with peace with God. And then just finally, and uh, this is back to this slide, just finally we have new access. Let's just briefly touch on this. Notice in Romans uh, 5 verse 2, Paul says, Through whom, Jesus Christ now, through whom we have gained access by faith... Into this grace in which we now stand. This is a third dimension of being secure in God's love. We are justified. We've got a new location. We have peace with God. We live in a whole new atmosphere, not under condemnation, but with an assumption of God's loving kindness towards us. And then Paul says, But you also have new access. You've gained access into this grace in which we now stand. The word that Paul uses here indicates the idea of a formal introduction it's almost alluding in in the greek language it's almost alluding to the idea that if you knew someone who was your patron remember in the roman world this is about going back to the people who used to think mouse brain was the delicacy right remember they weren't they're not our culture in their culture you had this patron client relationship that was fundamental to how society worked and you honored your patron and your patron provided introductions for you to those who could help you gain access, gain advantage, gain resource. And so the language Paul's using here is almost of the, the language of a patron who has brought an introduction that's given you, if you like, access to a higher, a higher sphere of society. And this is what Paul is alluding to. Jesus Christ has brought us through to places and to influence in God's presence that we could otherwise never have. No priest, no king, no one in the Old Testament has access to God like we have on a daily basis. Isn't that extraordinary? And could I say no Buddhist, no Muslim, no other faith can bring you access to God like we have it through Jesus Christ. I was just talking to a Muslim the other day, actually, who was uh, saying he was starting his own business. And I genuinely was asking because I was intrigued. I said to him, can you pray to Allah about that? You know, can you pray about your business? And he said, oh, yeah, you can pray, pray to Allah. And he said, look, I show you. And he was driving. He was a taxi driver. And uh, he showed me on his phone. I was like, just concentrate on the road. But he was so showing me on this uh, on phone. He, he flicked through to some set prayer. And he prayed the prayer, obviously, in Arabic. And then I said, what does that mean? And he said, well, it's sort of Allah is great. Allah will be with me. And I said, but, but, but can you pray about the business? You know, I asked you about your business. He says, well, no, I couldn't pray about the business, but I, this is a set prayer I can use. I just thought, isn't it extraordinary how we just get so used to the fact that we can just come to God in prayer, and we can be direct and specific. We don't, our prayers are not set prayers where we just say, God is great, God is great. You know, No, no, I can talk to God and say, he- Heavenly Father, will you help me with my business? You can speak about the specific. You could talk to him about daily bread, can you not? And we get overused, perhaps, overused to the incredible access we have gained through Jesus Christ into this grace in which we now stand. It's not who we are or what we know. It's who we have come to know um, in Jesus. A few years back, uh, we went to the White House in Washington, uh, my wife and I. And we went through security and we actually managed to go all the way in. And we stood right in the doorway of the Oval Office. And the reason that this all worked is because one of Charlotte's relatives was a special, um, a special assistant to the president at the time, who was Donald Trump, by the way, it was in the uh, Trump era. We may be going back there, but let's not go into that right now. Um, anyway, I stood in the doorway of the Oval Office, realizing how you know, you're on the brink of the most powerful space, you know, in terms of governance, in the world. And the access that we'd gained you know, I mean, there were guards there, but you could have literally just walked in, and, I, and they told me not to, but you could have just, you know, walked in. And the access that we'd gained was because this person has brought us in to their access. This is where they live and work, if you like, in the West Wing, and suddenly we're brought in there. And in the same way, Paul is saying, through Jesus Christ, we've been brought in to access to God, and we can speak to him as Abba Father. And, and I must admit, I was slightly frustrated that they didn't let me go. I want, kind of wanted to sit behind the desk and, you know, press a few buttons, which wasn't allowed. But, but I just felt as I, as I walked away, feeling that sort of slight sense of, oh, that's a shame. I just felt that sense that maybe it was the Holy Spirit just whispering to me. But that sense of, you know, actually, when we pray, we are, we are going through to much more powerful places than any president has ever sat. Than any priest in the Old Testament has ever been. When we pray in the name of Jesus, there is power and authority. There is access and there is grace. We literally, Paul says, we are standing in grace. Now, I don't know about you, but if that truth could be really applied and lived, we'd have a lot less to worry about, wouldn't you think? Because if you're standing in grace, I love the way Paul puts it. It's almost like you're just sort of in it, (laughs) The grace of God is just now this new immersion for your life. Yes, you may not know what is coming down the tracks in the future, but you're in God's grace. You are absorbed in the very presence and resource of Almighty God. I don't think you've got anything to fear in the future if that's where you're stood in the present. Would you agree? And yet so often we are, so often we, our lives are affected by angst about future scenarios, Instead of trusting in the God whose grace we are stood in, who we are secured in, we have nothing to fear if Almighty God is our Father. Wouldn't you agree with that? We have nothing to fear. And I'm saying this to myself because I'm not saying I'm immune from fear. I'm simply making the point that if I actually was secure in these truths, I have nothing to fear if Almighty God is my Father. One of my good colleagues and friends has just adopted a boy, and I was thinking about this as I was uh, preparing. Because he was telling me the other week that this this lad that they've adopted is now formally adopted. He's part of the family, and yet they found him. They found that he'd still been stashing food um, in his in his bedroom, because in his old life there was never enough. There was this th- continual threat he lived under of of not having anything to eat, and he's still working his way out of that location into a new location, and, and my, my friend, I, I found it quite moving actually, I, you know, not by nature perhaps so emotional, but I just thought, oh yeah, it moved me to tears, I was thinking, say, he was saying he actually took his new boy, and just showed him all that was in the cupboards, and he said, all of this is yours now, you know, you're part of our family, you will, ne- you will, ne- you will never not have enough, Now, it's one thing to say that, but he's got to live into that experience, isn't it? And I don't know about you, but I was just thinking about all of the worry, all of the stashing of planning and scheming that we get up to because we have this deep, insecure fear about whether we'll have enough. You know, Look, Almighty God just wants to say to us today, look, you are standing in my grace. You are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. All that I have, I share with you now. You will have enough. I felt like I wanted to speak that over some of us worried souls this morning. You will have enough. If you are in Christ, you will have enough. You don't need to anticipate a lack, but you can live with the security of being God's children. Amen? So Heavenly Father, we want to thank you this morning for this grace in which we now stand a grace that is always going to be enough. You've not run out on us yet. <laughs> we can look back with confidence. You've always, your grace has always been enough for us, Lord. And as we look forwards, we want to project forwards that same confidence. And I pray over those who struggle with that feeling of lack, with feelings of insecurity. Lord, I pray that Romans 5 would be peace to their souls. Even on this weekend, that we would move through to a new experience, a new confidence in these truths. Therefore, since we have been justified, that is sorted now, and there's no going back on it. God has justified us in Christ. Since we have been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have gained access now into this grace in which we stand. Father, I pray over this day that lies ahead of us. I pray, come Holy Spirit, apply the truths of the Holy Scriptures that we might live in the good of the freedom of the children of God, that we might not be sons and daughters who are still squirreling away and scheming away in fear that we might be sons and daughters who are secure in Jesus Christ. Thank you Father. Amen. Amen. Now I had some uh, homework for you to do um, this afternoon um, just a little bit Um, but I thought you might want to take a photo of this and maybe just uh, I wanted to give you a little take it in sort of moment so um, just quickly because I know the band will probably need to use the slides but if you would like to just uh, take a photo of this. You, maybe you just want to take that down to the beach or on a walk with you. I just like this idea of actually taking these great truths but putting our name in there. And f- how does that feel to personalize it? And where are, the, um, where are the truths that we still need to grow into to be secure in Jesus Christ? So maybe that um, you'll find a, a beautiful spot somewhere and five minutes to meditate on that this afternoon. There you go.